Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. I'm Majanna and I've been collecting words from around the world. I've always had a natural curiosity to explore words that would get my attention for their sound or meaning and I wanted to understand languages that I'd hear around me. I happen to have notebooks full of random words and expressions in different tongues, and it's a pretty random selection, I would say, acquired through different interactions with my friends or my language learners, and through listening to music from around the world, and of course, by keeping my ears open whilst traveling and taking language lessons. I'm an avid language learner and I'm an aspiring polyglot. When I was invited to contribute to UNESCO Rila Spring School, I think that's when I had my light bulb moment and I realized that, uh, of course, there must be more people like me who would be paying attention to the words that they hear here and there. And I decided to invite people to join me and to share their own experiences and the anecdotes and little stories about words and phrases and languages and to exchange them. And that's how the World Words Project was born and it remains an open invitation to share our personal stories and collectively reflect on the power of words and how they enter our memory and change from foreign to our own. Because we all know at least one word in a language that isn't our mother tongue. And I'm happy that in this podcast, we'll hear some personal stories, some of which may make us smile. Some will be somebody's reflection on a particular word. And there'll be also one story touching upon language persecution, which unfortunately still occurs until this day. I'm grateful to all the participants for sharing their stories with us. We will hear from John Kavanagh, from whom we will learn a handy Anglo-Saxon expression, Mary McCabe, who chose to share a word in Scots Gaelic, Maria Markidan with a word in Arabic, Abderrahman Mohammed, with a Russian-Egyptian mix-up of a word that once got him into a little trouble, and from Anna Vagadist, who chose a word inspired by her love for a stunning Scottish island. Being involved in the antique trade when I was very young proved to be an interesting way to grow up. Glasgow had antique arcades, with many small shops under one roof, which tended to be a nexus for some rather unusual and at times wonderful people. One example of an antique shop encounter which left a lasting impression on me arose when I was 17. From a choice of 25 shops in one complex called the Victorian Village on West Regent Street, Victoria arrived at mine with some small items to sell and the invitation to look at larger pieces, as she and her dad were in the process of preparing to move away from their home in Glasgow's West End. Victoria's dad, Leslie Blakely, turned out to be the recently retired Professor of Old English at Glasgow University, 
he was also the world authority on Anglo-Saxon riddles, as he proclaimed in the memorably rising cadences of an accent from Batley, Yorkshire. Have you heard of Shoddy? he asked me. At the time, I had not. He said, Shoddy is recycled wool products. They make them in Batley. So, if you see a label on a wool garment and it says pure new wool, it's not shoddy and it's not from Batley. I stood informed. Amidst the many objects I bought from these people, some I still have in my home, Leslie gave me a present, a copy of the book he'd authored called Teach Yourself Old English. Present-day reviews of this arcane work range from excellent and you could not do better to hard-going and indeed awful. I cannot claim to have garnered from reading Leslie's book any mastery of Anglo-Saxon, the tongue that replaced the languages of Roman Britain in the Middle Ages, but it certainly imprinted one particular word on my consciousness. The word is Gapungan. Gapungan was the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of excellent and is my choice for world words. A beautiful, joyous utterance, for sure, and one which has stayed in my lexicon across time. Not that it's exactly understood by many folks if I happen to utter it out with my immediate circle. The word itself is a lost part of linguistic history, and as it had nothing to do with the Scots language in its time, Gapungan is far enough removed that I can claim it is not sourced from my mother tongue. Excellent suffices well enough for most occasions when required. However, there are times when something extra is called for. And then, the word, the sound, the expression, the meaning. It's undeniably Gapungan. Hello, I'm Mary McCabe, and I'm going to tell you about the Machacroche, the hanging stick. Most people agree that the hanging stick was used in schools as part of the century-long project to stamp out the Gaelic language in Scotland, but there are different versions as to exactly how it was used. The first time I came across the word, the story went that the first child overheard speaking Gaelic in school would not be punished, but would have the stick hung round their neck. It was then the child's business to spy on their friends in the classroom and in other places where the teachers didn't go to get rid of the stick by taking off and hanging it onto somebody else if they could catch somebody else speaking Gaelic. The last child still wearing the stick at the end of the day got the belt. In other harsher versions, every pupil who spoke Gaelic and was given the hanging stick got the belt. And the first pupil got belted all over again at lunchtime if they hadn't managed to get rid of the stick onto somebody else. This was an efficient way of stamping out the language, as well as making the pupils associate Gaelic with ongoing public humiliation. It gave them an incentive to spy on and report their friends in parts of the school where the teachers didn't go, such as the playground, the sheds and the school toilets. Versions of the same strategy were used elsewhere in Wales, in Nova Scotia and Canada, where there were large numbers of Gaelic-speaking emigres, Kenya and parts of colonial Africa. The match Croche was reported as being in use in the Isle of Lewis as late as the 1930s. Angus Machnickel, a well-known Gaelic poet who went to school in Skye in the late 1940s and early 1950s, before the days of television, told me that he started school aged five without a word of English in his head. 
The class were given a six-weeks crash course in English and afterwards they were punished if they spoke Gaelic. When they reached the stage of secondary school, they were told Latin was compulsory, but for a second language, they could choose between Gaelic or French. Most of them chose Gaelic, they chose French because they thought it was more useful and because they thought they could already speak Gaelic despite the primary school's best efforts. Angus chose Gaelic and he found himself faced with a teacher whose own mother tongue was Gaelic, teaching Gaelic as a foreign language through the medium of English to a class of pupils who themselves had Gaelic as the mother tongue. Fortunately, attitudes have changed and there are now efforts to save the Gaelic language through Gaelic medium education and Gaelic broadcasting. And time will tell if we're closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. I'd now like to read you my poem, Macha Croche. This imagines the experience of a Highland pupil losing concentration during a lesson in English history. The poem's in English, but I use the, the idiom of Gaelic. And it's, it, it was published in a Scottish pen anthology called Declarations. I'll point out that Hami Dulach means I am sorry. Matcha Croche, Hanging Stick. It was not about history at all that I was thinking when the Domini asked about the Wars of the Roses. I was thinking the black cow would be calfing. I was looking out at the white, thick macher. I was thinking about the wee calf born early in the snow. There was no history in it at all when I let the reckless Hamidulich fall out of my stupid mouth. When first we came to this school, I would have been saved. The stain of the Gaelic passed swiftly amongst us then, in the classroom, in the yard, at work or at playing in the ball. I would not be lacking the chance to unburden my shame. Now there is no corner left where the pitiless berla, that means English, is not to the fore. The dominus bell will catch me still bearing the taint of my people. Hamidullah, it will not be long before I will be sorry enough. Dullah gulior, gujera, that means sorry enough indeed. Uvinde. Words. They are the shapes we dress our memories in. They are the suitcase we carry on our journey always. I always feel the need for silence to hear who I am and hope to become. And then the words, companions of silence, to hear each other to try and understand. We all share silence and we all share the feeling of loss at times, mirrored by the feelings that come upon us when we are surrounded by a language, by words we do not understand. Along my journey, I met with words, some I still carry, some I left along the way, some I heard only once and don't remember. All languages, however distant or strange they may seem, carry something of us, an echo of our stories. I found myself a teacher of a language for a while, in a community of storytellers, in a language 
as unfamiliar as inspiring. For me, English in all its forms and identities has been a bridge to find parts of myself and of others. I hoped I would be able to share the same with my storytellers, my girls at Alasma School in the Hajar Mountains. English and Arabic met every day along with us, and we shared stories dressed in both languages. One morning, a word echoed something I had not shared, something that called of my first home. The girls echoed repeatedly, Banat, Banat, as we prepared for the end of the year. I stopped, and in the middle of all words, for me there was only silence. In Romania, Banat is a region full of history and folklore, costumes and traditional dances, and what I thought until that moment, a sense of one identity. I knew what Banat meant to me, but what about them? What does Banat mean in Arabic, I asked. Girls, miss, girls. In that word, that brought together all the languages of my journey. I stopped being a teacher. Instead, I was a learner of languages without a name. Languages that, as much as building bridges, break borders within ourselves, our communities, our human divided countries. Languages, words, silence, they are all stories. And hearing the silence behind words, all words, we find the space of nature and of life where we can remember and understand and feel as one. Kofta. The word Kofta in Egyptian Arabic, as well as many other Eastern languages, means meatballs. And in Egyptian Arabic, it also means kebab. The word exists also in Russian language, but it has a totally different meaning. The story starts when my Russian wife and I decided to invite my father and mother-in-law to a barbecue party in our garden in a small town near Moscow. I was in the kitchen preparing for the barbecue when I heard my wife saying this to her mom. Which translates into, do you know where the red kofta is? What does she mean? I ask myself. Is she trying to find the red kofta? I thought she must have meant the raw kebabs I was supposed to prepare for the party. And I realized I hadn't prepared them yet. So I hurried up and took some skewers and started making the kofta fingers quickly before my wife could notice I was late. Soon they were ready and I put them in the fridge so that they could hold their shape when I put them on the fire. A few minutes later my wife appeared in the kitchen and said Do you need it? Which means 
I cannot find the red kofta. Have you seen it? I saw the confusion in her eyes, so I said, Yeah, don't worry. It is in the fridge waiting for you. I thought that would reassure her and help her relax. But on the contrary, I suddenly saw a scared look on her face, as if now she was even more worried about the red kofta. Are you kidding me? What is my kofta doing in the fridge? She said. For a moment, I thought she was greedy. Why would she say my kofta? Is it supposed to be ours? For us all to eat? But before I could even answer her question, she opened the fridge and shouted, Now, where is that kofta? I pointed to the kofta's keywords in the fridge, and I could see a mix of disappointment and bewilderment on her face. Before she pulled the blouse she was wearing and said, Eta kofta. This is a blouse. That was the moment I learned that one of my favorite traditional dishes of Egypt, in someone else's language, is just a blouse. Certainly, Arabic kofta is much more delicious than the Russian one. Sky by Anna Bagadist The word sky is my destiny. It changes its meaning every chapter of my life, and it always gives me hope and something to look forward to. And here is why. Chapter 1. Anna After my ninth grade, I changed my school and passed exams into a law lyceum, one of the best places in the city to finish your secondary education at that time, and to earn a place at a law academy afterwards. During my first exam, it was a written essay, I met a girl, also named Anna, who became a very dear friend for many years to come. The story of this word starts with her. Anna was a total contradiction to what I was at 15 years old. She wasn't shy, she was very openly passionate about things. Fast, smart, and with quite the opposite tastes in books and music to me. And she was a bad girl if you looked at her through my mom's eyes, meaning she was smoking and drinking and experienced. I was a well-behaved girl who was afraid to upset anyone, who tried to get the best marks, who didn't want to attract excessive attention and make any noise. I was a girl who liked studying, reading, and appreciated friendship more than anything else in life. Anna read the essay I had written and she loved it. I think this was the first time anybody really loved what I did. We passed our exams and got into the Lyceum. Since we were both newcomers, we became inseparable and sat together at one desk till our graduation. I had had some really good friends before in my life, but Anna made me feel special by being genuinely interested in every aspect of my life, and I hadn't experienced anything like that ever before. It was also amazing to be discovering the world through her eyes. She made me fall in love with the Beatles music and especially John Lennon's life and work. Not that I didn't know the group before, but I had only heard a few songs and I was quite indifferent. She provided me with lots of audio and videotapes, and soon I couldn't pass a music store without buying another record. My stepdad still believes it was he who introduced me to the world of the Beatles. Ha! 
I remember once I bought a book with a translation of every song written by the group and brought it into school. Anna took it, hid it in the cloakroom and missed a class reading it. By the time I reached my 11th grade, I started dreaming about moving to St. Petersburg to become a dancer. It caused a revolution at home. My mom didn't want to hear about it since I was expected to follow her dream and inherit her firm and her office as a lawyer. But Anna and John Lennon had already changed my life a lot, so there was no going back. I don't want to be a lawyer, mama. In one of the Lennon's video clips I got from Anna, there is a phrase like a whisper for the other half of the sky. It felt like a shared secret, so I took a blue felt pen and drew those words on my wallpaper in capital letters and added portraits of famous dancers below it. I guess it must have been a shock for my mom to see it. This became my mantra and my guiding maxim. Just imagine, every step you take is for the other half of the sky. Now I know, this was just the beginning. Chapter 2. Sky N Two years later, I finally moved to St. Petersburg. Being on my own wasn't new, but being in a big city alone was frightening at first. I almost regretted my decision. I had no permanent address and no phone number. To get a letter from my friends or to place a call to my mom, I had to go to the main post office. That's when the internet changed things. I remember our first computer class at the university. We were taught to register a personal email address and I came up with SkyN for it. I started to use it everywhere, for my emails first, later for social networks, chats, and my Beatles fan club name. None of my friends knew the meaning behind it, and I believe they still don't. To say I was busy doesn't do it justice. I was studying journalism, writing reviews for the main ballet magazine of the country, becoming a good photographer, learning languages, going to the festivals, exhibitions, and performances every single day, undertaking an internship at the Mariinsky Theater, and taking dance classes three to five days a week. My nickname served me well. Maybe at first impression it was a bit ambitious, but it reflected how people saw me. A smiling person, easy to get along with, if you can't be bothered to get to know her, living life to the full as if every day was her last. A guy I like used to call me Angel, which fitted well with the sky. Some people were calling me Sky and in Russian, and it sounded like a great compliment to me. There were no obstacles for Sky N. Every door I knocked on opened at my touch. Incredible feeling. Behind one of those doors was a theater company where I later worked as a manager, producer, and eventually as a dancer for a whole 15 years. The leader and artistic director of the company definitely knew the secret of how to punch a hole in the sky. After watching their show La Divina Commedia, something changed inside me. I felt something ground and outstanding and spiritual. I felt something that was beyond words and I knew I should be part of that. It was another secret shared. I was old enough to feel it, take it in and love it unconditionally, but not old enough to fully understand the meaning of what members of the theater group were saying. The horizon is always at your feet and the sky begins right from the ground. That was to happen later on. Chapter 3. Sky N With E after Sky Scotland is the country I have regularly visited since 2002, but I only truly discovered it years later, thanks to my friends who lived there. In 2012, Sky became Sky with an E in the end for me. You won't hear any difference if you say the word out loud, but there is a huge difference when I utter this word these days. What I mean is an amazingly beautiful island in Scotland. 
Sky begins from the ground there, literally, just as soon as you cross the bridge. I had a few days off and I drove there without any plans, open-minded to whatever happens. And I learned that when you let go of your control, this is when the world can actually start speaking to you and showing you what life is about. Sky is very different. It is flat in some parts, it has mind-blowing scenery in others. Sometimes it looks like a different planet. It can open itself to you bit by bit if you are ready to go along with everything that's happening on the way. It's changeable because of the weather, it switches its mood every few hours or even minutes and you learn to accept all the circumstances and conditions you are in. And sky always rewards your patience and efforts with some incredible beauty. Its combination of natural power and outstanding landscapes make you think about sky on earth. It brings tears to my eyes because it is so beautiful that it hurts. Sky makes me feel complete and happy. It's a place where every thought of mine is heard and becomes real in an instant. It's a place where I'm not afraid of anything. It's a place where I find peace and tranquility in all weather conditions. It's where I feel whales and seals underwater and then see them a few moments later on the surface. It is where I become more myself than anywhere else. Since my first visit, Sky has meant coming home for me. And guess what? It was still just the beginning. Chapter 4. Anna Within recent years, I have had hundreds of opportunities to witness how every tiny part of life in this world speaks about its source and how the main source of life reflects itself in everything that surrounds us and is inside us. As if you could suddenly start to understand the language of animals or as if you could see the whole picture by looking at just a hundred pieces out of a thousand pieces jigsaw. The evidence is omnipresent. In the ocean, in the mountains, in the skies, in the ground, in the forests, in the human body and all around the planet. The best way to hide something is to make it public, to have every proof at your arm's length, to hear it from every corner, to see it in every biography, in every structure, in every coincidence. At some point in life there is this truth that you can't turn your face from. I've noticed how my friends' kids start asking their parents, Mom, I want to be christened, suddenly out of nowhere at about seven years old. And so did I when I was seven. I look back and think, how smart I was, how sharp when I was teeny. I knew everything I needed to know without knowing it. I acted based on the knowledge I wasn't aware of. Everything falls into place once you've seen the great mind behind it all and feel the unimaginable love this world was created with. Awareness was all I needed to get to the other side, for the other half of the sky. Sky, which started as inspiration or destination, transformed into something I don't need to find anymore. As I've become aware by now, it's something inside you. It is also supposed to be a starting point every morning. Sky does really start from the ground. It starts with you. And when there is enough of sky inside you, it will be time for you to go. And so it ends where it begins. A perfect circle, just as my first name is. Thank you for listening to this selection of stories submitted for the project. And if you'd like to submit yours, you'd be more than welcome. All you need to do is visit www.tinyurl.com slash worldwords and that's where you'll find a little form with more information and also a space to submit your story. And I'm going to keep the project open 
from time to time, I hope to have workshops, creative writing sessions, and just different ideas where people could come together and bring their stories alive. And the dream is one day to publish a collection of these words and their stories and share them with the world. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.